Hey guys, this is Doug. Thanks for listening to What's the Hazard. I want to recognize our incredibly generous sponsors, Cheyenne Wolford of Custom Concrete Specialists, John Fallowich, Fallowich Construction Services, Jim Cover, Nebraska Department of Labor On-Site Consultation Group, Danny Arroyo, WorkSafe Consulting, and Building Omaha, a collaboration between the Nebraska Electrical Contractors Association and the IBEW. Thank you, one and all. You are true believers in workplace safety and health, and I appreciate you. All right, let's get into today's episode. It is uh, Friday, November 11th, Veterans Day, and so I want to specifically thank, gosh, so many people to thank, anyone who has served or continues to serve in our military, men and women, thank you so much for your service. I, I know this sounds a little bit cliche at this point, uh, but I am incredibly grateful. I was drinking my coffee this morning, and I always try to have a moment of gratitude in the morning when I get up, and first thing that came to mind was everybody who has chosen to serve. I know there are people in my family who have served. Uh, my guest's family, we were just sharing that family people in his family have served. There are so many people in the safety profession that have served, uh, people that have been on this show that have served, my good friend Aaron Cerrone, who continues to serve. So happy Veterans Day. Thank you for your service. I hope you get a free breakfast. I know there are a lot of places where they are. And if you don't get a free breakfast, call me, and uh, I'll take you to breakfast. So maybe not today, but thank you very much. Um, I want to introduce Mark Jones, my new friend, um, comrade and uh, true believer. We met probably a month ago at a, at a Make You Safe conference over in Des Moines, Iowa. And we just, I love those kind of conferences. It was a relatively small, intimate conference, probably 100 people. Everybody there was either on board or was making their way to being on board for this safety journey. And Mark and I just started chatting and I knew immediately that we were kindred spirits. It just, it just clicked immediately. You started saying things that were like right in line what I've been learning about. Um, so you agreed to come on this. Uh, and it's always kind of a, an interesting, uh, I don't know, journey, fiasco, whatever you want to call it. I mean, this, you know, I mean, you and I are both probably from a generation that doesn't really take well to these kind of things. But um, thank you for joining us. You are currently with Plastipac, a company that I'm familiar with. I've done a little bit of work with Plastipac down in Kansas City, actually. And we bumped into each other, and you are in Plymouth, Michigan. You are in a corporate position, I believe, right. if you're not the, the corporate EHS manager. Yep. Um, and you have a really impressive history. You've done some big jobs and big things. And so I am really looking forward to hearing your story and your evolution as a safety professional. I do want to say one thing. Um, I met with a company yesterday and with an attorney, and the company had just suffered a fatality of one of their employees recently and they were looking for guidance and so we we met yesterday and you know the two owners of this company were obviously devastated they were still in shock to some degree they were they were scared they were anxious they were nervous they were you know just really saddened by the event and it just reminds me why what we do is so important and so all of you that are true believers in this safety and health thing, you know, keep doing what you're doing. Keep up the good work. It is really critically important work. 
keep learning. That's why we do these things. That's why I bring someone like Mark on to share his experience and wealth of knowledge with you. Um, if you're not learning in this business, you are certainly regressing. So um, keep the faith, keep up the good work, and uh, we appreciate what you're doing. So with that, I'm going to introduce Mark Jones. Um, and Mark is coming. I love your backdrop, man. You are coming to us from Upper you know, Michigan, Plymouth. Yeah, Michigan. Yeah, right up. Yeah, yeah, right there. We go. Yeah, right yeah. I'm, down in, I'm in Omaha, Nebraska. Colbert, yeah, see, we always do it by the hand. Yeah, I'm That's right there. Right. There we go. Yeah. Is that where you're located? Yeah, we are. Southeast Michigan. Is that close to Ann Arbor? Is that pretty close to Ann Arbor? Yeah, 15 minutes away. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. Uh, as an Ohio State graduate, um, it it pains me to say that you're my friend, but. But I can, I'm a bigger man than that. So but that's okay because I can give you clear directions from Ann Arbor to, uh, you know, Columbus. It's east till you step in it and south till you, till you uh, smell it. So, oh, right. exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I love that. It's well, crazy. thanks for joining me, man. I appreciate it. And um, I'm really, I've really been looking forward to this because, as I said, we just clicked immediately when we started chatting. And once I started learning about your history, I was just fascinated and I would love to hear more about it. So I'm going to, this is where I shut up and I'm going to turn it over to you and just, you know, talk a little bit about your background and how you got into this crazy journey and where it's led you. And then we can talk about where we are today. Yeah. And we'll talk some about hop too. And I got some pretty good hop stories and I awesome. love to talk my journey there. So I want to first start off much like you said about thanking veterans. My mother was a Navy wave. She's 93 years old and, you know, doing well. And my father was in the army and he earned two bronze stars over in, uh, the Korean wow. conflict. So military history is in my family. So uh, again, I thank those veterans and some gave all and all gave some, I'm sorry, some gave all, all gave some, right? Is, uh, or some gave yeah. all, right? So what they've done for us is just incredible. And, you know, I'm, and I'm truly appreciative. So when, when I went to school, um, I wanted to be a, a firefighter paramedic, right? That was my career aspirations and loving EMS and loving the fire service and the adrenaline and helping people and all that sorts of stuff. And while I was in school, somebody said, hey, what if you got like a health and safety degree, too? I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. So I decided I was getting out of school at a time when there wasn't, you know, a lot of jobs. So uh, I decided it was the right thing to do. Maybe pick up that dual major. When I got out of school, there were no municipal jobs. It was in the early 80s and, you know, times were tough. Uh, it was a it was a big you know recession um, and resume number 122 resume number 122 clicked. At an insurance company in the town that I that actually uh, you know uh, lived in, I'm like, really work there, work there. So um, I, I did insurance for five years. I mean, I was in loss prevention, and, and I really got to say that I really enjoyed that. Um, and that you know, I think for those that are you know entering in, into the profession, if that's an option that you know they they would want to consider, for five years, every single day, I was in a different plant, a different business, just doing something unique talking to so many, so many different types of leaders and really learning the business. My, my favorite story just quickly is, um, you know, I go to a lot of businesses. I went to a combination funeral home gas station, <laughs> right. which, which brings new meaning to the term drive-through, right? <laughs> it wasn't a drive-through funeral home, but you know, I mean, yeah. just, it was really unique stuff. And the reason I left that is not why you would think it wasn't for the money, even though I was able to get more money before I left is instead of telling people how to run their own program, I wanted to run a safety program, right? Because every day I was telling people how to do it, yet I had never had that pleasure to do it. It's a pleasure, right? So uh, I was blessed and honored. I, I went to work for Ford, um, Ford Motor Company. One of my fellow volunteer firefighters was like a divisional guy, and he was uh, able to get me the gig to get in there. 
Um, I had a fantastic uh, uh, a journey through Ford. Uh, I was there 31 years, same as Baskin Robbins Flavors. Oh, and um, I did 11 different positions. I actually retired as the uh, a corporate safety manager. Um, and I'll tell you about some of the things there and some of the things I've learned. You know, while I was there, we unfortunately had, you know, the Rouge explosion, uh, February 1st, 1999 at uh, 1.03 p.m. That's in my mind. Uh, and I'll tell you some of the journeys that, uh, you know, we learned from that about SIF and, and why I really have a passion for SIF. Um, and, and I love talking about it all day because I think it's a bit of a lost art. And I really worry about the next generation, the things that you and I worry about to prevent minor injuries are not the same things as those precursors. We need to be learning about SIF events. And that's why learning teams and organizational learning and getting deep in, in the context and asking the right questions, that's how you get to SIF prevention. Uh, it's not, and I'll tell you, I mean, uh, I'll tell you more about the company that I work for now. So then, so I was actually retired 19 days. Um, I went out and bought this um, very expensive, beautiful pontoon boat that cost a lot of money. And I decided, why don't I go back to work to get it, you know, paid for? Um, I had several job opportunities, but I interviewed with a company called Plastipac. Um, I met the COO and I fell in love with the guy. I, st I still work directly for him. Not many safety people can say they, they work directly for a COO, but that's the kind of passion this company has. Um, a privately held company, been in business 55 years. Uh, our owner still comes to work every day. I saw him several minutes ago in the restroom. Yes, mm -hmm. Mark, how are you doing today? How are things in safety? Um, but um, I asked my boss a story. I said, um, I feel a certain passion for safety. I said, what's your safety story? He said, um, nobody's ever asked me my safety story. And I said, I just did. Mm -hmm. And uh, and and he told me a story about how he was uh, preoccupied and how he got hit by a lift truck, and it just bruised his leg and it could have killed him and how it changed his whole outlook on life. Wow. So, um, yeah. So uh, and we'll talk more about that. So the so um, plastic packs the company makes uh, uh, plastic bottles. Uh, the average person have seventeen of their containers. Seventeen of our containers within your home. We make everything from uh, you know carbonated water bottles. Uh, uh, you know, detergent bottles, oil bottles, uh, salad dressing, uh, barbecue sauce. Um, and uh, so it's uh, it's uh, it's very different than the auto industry. Right. But it's uh, it's a good. Uh, and again, just I'm excited to talk about some of the things I've I've learned to that you know journey along the way. So um, remarkable. Yeah. yeah. So, so how, how long have you been with Plastic Pack? I've been there four years. Uh, last week was my fourth anniversary. Yep. Nice. nice. In, in fact, on my on my one year anniversary was the most serious event in the company history, right? Where um, we had an employee, um, again, just a great human error story um, that they were rewiring a piece of equipment. Um, and they were basically putting something that was 110 into 480 and the, the employee didn't know and you know completed the circuit. Uh, he went into cardiac arrest. Um, and as all those things would have lined up, um, you know, the, uh, the nurse's station was literally a hundred feet away. Uh, they put him on a uh, an AED. They shocked him, and by the time he got in the ambulance, uh, he was talking to them. He literally had a six percent survival rate. If you look at the statistics from the American Heart Association, uh, and he was off three weeks and came back to work. Oh my so, god! So again, on top of everything else we do, um, the whole issue with emergency preparedness. Again, I've still you know I've been in the fire service for about forty years. The same with EMS. I was a paramedic nine years. And, um, and, and just, you know, have, and all else goes wrong. Emergency preparedness is one of those things you don't know when you're going to need it, but having, having that in place is, is critically important. And we owe it to our associates. When I was at Ford, we probably average about five saves a year. 
from our emergency response teams. We took it really, really serious and kept, you know, CPR, first aid, AED updated because it's just so, so critically important. It is. Wow, that's really an interesting story. I'm impressed that you were able to save that young man. Um, good for you. That that reinforces what you just said. That the, the our ability to respond to those incidents, while you know we we want to be able to prevent them, certainly, but when they do occur, we want to be able to respond to them. I had a young man on the show last week who's a paramedic with the Omaha Fire Department, and he was talking about that. You know, stopping the bleed, topping up, you know, talking about these traumatic bleeding events and how to address those and the criticality of doing that in a timely fashion. And like you, I am a, I have really committed myself recently to the prevention of catastrophic issues. You know, I mean, we, we deal with OSHA compliance all the time. That's part of this. We have to be compliant and that's important. And we also deal with the minor incidents that hit our 300 logs. And that's important. We don't want people to strain backs and, you know, we don't want lacerations or things like that. We want to be cautious about those. But as you mentioned, those precursors that can lead to these critical incidents, I have really, I'm trying to heighten my game with regard to, you know, intervention into those things and preparation in the event that something like that happens. You know, this, let's do a half-ass fire drill once a year thing and call it, you know, preparedness just isn't cutting it. So I'm with you on that. Yeah. You know, one of, one of the things that I'm you know really proud about. So um, one of the positions I had at Ford was um, I did a job where I was co I was co-located with the United Auto Workers. I had a really fancy title of called company co-chair of the National Joint Committee on Health and Safety. Wow. So for every hour that an hourly employee works, five cents goes into a health and safety training fund. And our job was to administer that, right. And put together those, those programs. So I had a really terrific team of not just, you know, company, but, you know, union uh, professionals we worked with really, really closely, you know, behind the scenes, uh, we had some interesting discussions, but we went, when we walked out the door, we were always shoulder to shoulder, but Ford at, a bit, at that time was, I'll say 103 year old company had never been a year without an occupational fatality. And uh, we just put our feet in the, in the sand and we said, we have got to end this. And, and we put together a number of intervention programs relative to high risk work, we went through everything that we do from electrical to working at heights to all those different types of programs um, and then did a lot with with the non-routine pre-task type stuff, put together different processes and had a whole methodology to, to, to think through that. Um, and, and we had a streak of six years without a fatality. It, and again, I wish it, 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 it had gone even longer, right? And again, and it was a fluke. And, and, but really what you know precipitated that was that in addition to, to have never gone a year is that... Um, Although our skilled trades workforce was only 20%, they were 80% of those fatalities. So we really concentrated on working with those. We did focus groups and getting those folks together and really learning from them, really learning sort of the blue line of, of the work that's happening. And the thing that was so valuable to that is the folks that I worked with on the union side, they came from the floor, right? I'm a company guy. I'd never worked a damn day mm -hmm. on the line, much like they had. And they, all, they had all come from the floor. And we go to a site and, and we would do learning teams. We would ask those tough questions and, and, and asking the better questions, right? Tell us the things that are the constraints. What are the issues? What job makes you nervous to do? Because they're target rich. We just have to ask the right questions. And again, and put together the you know programs around it. And been with a similar journey here at uh, here at Plastipac. When I came in the company, uh, we were averaging about a serious injury, uh, you know, once a month. Um, 
again, never, never, a, you know, fatality, but some of the life-threatening injuries, it really saw a lot of those were relative to machine guarding and um, um, a lockout and, and really put together strong intervention programs around those. And, um, you know, really, really proud to say that uh, we've dropped those about 70%. And whereas averaging one a month, we had four the last two years, two, two the year before that. Again, that's, that's the kind of stuff you take to zero. That's yeah. the kind of stuff you take to zero, right? Wow. And and building capacity to fail safety and safely and those type things. And and again, we're going to talk more about it because I have like the best capacity story ever, and mm-hmm. uh, we'll get to that in a, in a you know a couple minutes. But oh my God, there's so much there to unpack what you just described, and I am really uh, in awe of the stuff that you've done. I I am always, you know, just totally respectful of people that have had big jobs and big responsibilities i barely have any responsibility and i i I can barely you know shoulder the burden of my my minimal responsibilities but the things that you've done are very impressive but one thing that you talked about that i would i would ask you maybe to elaborate on a little bit was the idea of a learning team and asking the right questions and um and it relates to sifs that you mentioned earlier I think, you know, a lot of people ask me, you know, how do we do this? I mean, they can read these books. You and I have talked about some of the books by Conklin and Decker and some of those guys, and and, and they, they can read the books. I mean, that's okay. Um, they don't always give great examples in the books. Sometimes it's a little bit more theoretical. Sometimes it makes it challenging. <laughs> how do I really put this into practice? And And I think the learning team concept, you know, and, and asking the right questions is a great place to start, or at least one of the early interventions. Can you talk about that just a little bit? Yeah, I'm happy. I'll wait if it's okay with you. I'll, I'll start on my journey a little bit and then yep. jump into that. Is that okay? Start wherever you want to start. Absolutely. Yep. So I actually look back because I wasn't quite quite sure what um, a year it was. It was 2015. Uh, it was an ASSP, now ASSE or vice versa. I'm sorry, ASSP conference and uh, I dragged my uh, union and some of my company colleagues and I said, we're going to Dallas. We're going to take a class on a Saturday, right? You're like, you're doing what to us? I said, we're taking a class on a Saturday. And uh, it was my first time to meet Bob, Bob Edwards, who coincidentally, I'm spending my afternoon with Bob today. Um, But, um, and um, I listened to what Bob said and just, I got, I got on board. It really, you know, it, 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 it sounded really interesting to me. Here's the thing I'm going to say. We were able to bring in Todd Conklin. And, and, and here's what I say to people. I, I've been blessed and honored, and I mean it, blessed and honored, to probably have seen Todd 10 times and, and to meet Sydney twice and sit through half-day sessions with, with Sydney and probably four-hour sessions with Todd. It took me three times to grasp the concepts to where I was starting to say, I get it. So, so many folks say, in fact, I have to laugh, uh, we're bringing in to, uh, um, Bob today because we're having a big site manager's next meeting next week. And we prepped them with questions and exactly what you said, exactly what you just said, Doug, they said, how do I operationalize this? What do I do with this? What, what are the kind of learnings that, that I, you know, can, um, you know, that I can, you know, do from this? So what we started to do was, again, we were very fortunate that we had we had resources and we were able to go out and actually try some learning teams. And, uh, you know, we went to some of those high risk tasks and, and the one that really comes to mind that I'll tell you was we went to um, a stamping plant that was doing crane maintenance. OK, mm-hmm. so how high this crane is in the air? 
30, 40 feet. It doesn't matter. It's one big step, right? Right. And, and while we were up there, you could see footprints on top of the crane in areas where they had to access the motors and there was no fall protection. Right. And I'm not going to ask that foolish question because we both know the answer as to what was going on. Right. Mm -hmm. And and to sit down with those trades guys and and just let them talk about their day and what the expectations are and the things that we ask of them and asking them how they access us and what they do and what are the constraints and what are the issues you talk about, talk about being, you know, target rich. It was incredible. And then we were seeing a series of material handling injuries, you know, where, um, People were going in, 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 you know, to trailers. We had some people get pinned in trailers. We had a lot of stock issues, stock in the aisle, all these issues that were going on. Um, we call them primary and secondary hits. So primary hit is where you get hit directly with the forklift or, or the rack. The second is, as they're moving stock, as their stock positioning, they bump that into you. And, 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 and people said, well, we have to fix those. And I said, wait, a primary hit is different than a secondary hit. And the interventions are very, very different. A primary hit is probably a potentially fatal event, right? Mm -hmm. A secondary hit is a bump or bruise. And back to like you and I chatted, what you do to prevent a minor injury is different than an SIF. And you have to separate those. Absolutely. So I was very fortunate. I I think I sat through 11 different learning teams and listened to those forklift drivers who we always want. We always want to blame the forklift driver, right? And they come in and say, hey, I came in that day. The line was not replenished. So I was, you know, I was asked by my boss to get the line running, keep it going. And oh, by the way, somebody forgot to stock some part. So I have to drop everything. I got to have to go to the other side of the plant, you know, go onto a trailer, try to find it. Yeah, the reason I'm storing stock all over and blocking aisles is because I'm trying to get to that part to keep, keep the line running. So these are not bad people that are trying to do bad mm-hmm. things. These are people that fundamentally come to work to do good work, right? Mm-hmm. No doubt. If you have a bad employee, that's a different story. Get rid of right. those people, right? But, you know, understanding the blue line of, of what they face every day was, you know, very, very interesting to us. Absolutely. And that that lends itself directly to the comment that Conklin made in that uh, five principles um, context drives behavior. I mean, as you said, these are employees that are trying to get the job done. They want to get the job done. They take pride in getting the job done. I mean, at least... 90% of the employees that I deal with are on board trying to do a good job. There's always a few outliers and those really aren't the ones we tend to worry about or deal with. It's these people that we are oftentimes contextually putting into difficult circumstances that we need to try to come to their aid and, and make some changes. But um, it's, it's fascinating that when you open up to them now, were you able to get them to open up immediately or how do you develop the trust that they feel comfortable sharing this stuff with you so again you and i are aligned i i wrote myself a big note here and i put the word trust right yeah yep. and, and it's it's really beneficial i so i think the couple of things first of all we were using an we were using an outside facilitator does that make a difference i don't know but clearly somebody that said hey i i'm not here I, i'm i'm not a, a a snitch for the company you know etc the other piece that at least i had going initially with those is that I was with a UAW member who was, who was, who was one of them, right? Mm-hmm. Who said, look, guys and gals, this is safe space. We're here because we care about you. Um, and, and that's the reason we're here and we want to get this data. And, and the people were a lot opening. I mean, initially, sometimes, Doug, like you, you can mention, it could be about like going to that, you know, middle school dance with the boys and girls lined up on, <laughs> right. on the different sides of the aisle. But 
to break down those questions and really start asking the leading questions, the open questions, more of the hows, you, you got to get away from the whys and, and just to get the dialogue going, much like it's really understanding the dialogue of, of, of what they do every day. Because let's face it, they're normally successful. Yes. And, and, what, and, and what's a successful day day look for you? And then what are those operational challenges? Right. And, and what are the risks you think you face? So it just it's about the questions. I mean, you know, we know we spent a lot of time uh, asking better questions. And we've put here in, in my uh, present role at Plastipac, one of our 2023 objectives is you can't tell people you just have to ask better questions. You got to teach people how to do it. Right. Mm-hmm. So we actually put together guidelines of here's the kind of questions you ask to try to get that dialogue going, uh, uh, you know, about the, you know, um, you know, blue line. And one of the things that it just, just my personal example, having spent 40 mm, something years within the, you know, volunteer fire service, is that the job I fear the most is using a, a K-12 or a partner saw. It's a big, large reciprocating saw with a big a blade that like you can cut the, uh, you know, you can cut in, cut into the side of a building. Those those things scare the hell out of me, right? Mm-hmm. And that's, a, and it has an incredible kickback to it. Um, that's the job that I like to do the least. And, and and that's the job that, you know, if I'm talking to the fire service, just because I've done those jobs, I, I know that, but you know, you don't, you don't always know that, you know, the right. thing that I, that I was able to do here at, at my job at Plaspec, which was really cool is uh, we have a plant that's uh, six miles away and they get really busy during the cider season, making cider bottles. Mm-hmm. And they said, <laughs> Hey, and they said, Hey, does anybody come want to come work the line? I raised my hand. Right. So it was a rather interesting. So here I am. I mean, I probably stood. I tried to wear the blue jeans and the T-shirt. Right. But um, so here I am. It's it's in the middle of COVID. Right. So I'm wearing all my PPE. I have to wear safety glasses. I have to wear a mask and my mask is fogging up. I'm getting frustrated. And, and, and uh, you know, I, I think they first thought I was the, you know, the company snitch. <laughs> right. well, you know, I have I have somebody call I have somebody come over and tap my shoulder. Um, sir, um, I need to do a team lift. Can you help me? I'm like, okay, that one was set up, right? But, <laughs> but I went back a couple times and Doug, I'm following the black line, right? Because I'm nervous. I know that I'm a bit, a bit on the spotlight. I've never worked a production line. This was pretty simple, really. I was taking bags. I was bagging them. I had to put a bar, bar a barcode on them. So I'm doing everything, the right sequence. I'm trying to make the barcode work, I, you know, blue line. You got to listen for it. That wasn't easy. After they got more comfortable with me being there, they, my coworkers saying, why do you do it that way? Do you know that you can scan five or six ahead so you can get a bit more uh, break time? And they were teaching me the shortcuts to the job. And then, and then as the company was reeling that I was proficient, I could not run just one machine, I could run two machines. We have somebody off today. Now I'm running two machines. So they're increasing the complexity of my job. Yes. And it wasn't sort of like Lucy, right? Building the chocolates. But it almost <laughs> got me that. It was stressful as hell. Absolutely. I had so much respect for those people that come to work to do that every day in realizing that we're all creatures of, of habit or creatures of efficiency. And I realized why the guy pre-scans five or six labels, but then what happens if the line goes down and there's a defect and I've already scanned those and I worked ahead, it scared me. I'm like, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm not doing it anymore. Cause mm-hmm. um, a, I want to do what's right. And I wanted to help the plant and uh, it was a great experience, but um, I, I thought I, I, I got to follow the rules. I'm an old guy. I'm a, I'm a rule follower. So this doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. That's but, exactly uh, me. I'm a rule follower as well, man. I've always been called that. And uh, you know, I just, I can't help myself. That's how I was raised, but 
what you were just describing. Now, I've been reading this other book that that Eric Hallnagel, the uh, efficiency thoroughness trade-off, and what you've just described is exactly what he says in the opening of the you know the prologue of that book is that you know when there is a demand for output, thoroughness takes a back seat to efficiency. We're going to find a way to make that happen. And if I have to cut some corners or develop some shortcuts, I'm going to do that. And if, if the, if the emphasis is on thoroughness, then efficiency is going to probably suffer as a consequence in some respects. And these are all just, these are just human nature issues that we deal with every day that don't fit neatly into a box necessarily and I think, you know, I mean, I know that Todd Conklin told me that, you know, one of the biggest problems is that we just assume the work is going to be the same every day. And we design systems and procedures based on that false assumption that everything is going to be the same every day. It's really amazing. Now, I've never heard Todd Conklin speak other than on YouTube. And I've never met Bob, although I've listened to him on YouTube. And um, I... I think that's fantastic that you've had an opportunity to work with those cats. And yeah, and, 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 and now I'm feeling bad because you and I should have done this next week. Um, I actually I actually talked to Bob last night. We talked for about 15 minutes, getting ready for today. And he's actually taking the exact things that you mentioned about Holnagel, and he's actually put those into a hop context. And he's so excited about it. He's actually presenting that today at, at 2 p.m. So, nice. so I've never seen it, but he is – bouncing off the wall is showing me that the work they're doing to incorporate that he and Andrea Baker work together. So uh-huh. more to come and there's some stuff and I'll be happy to share it with you. So it, you know, those, guys, those guys are, are open checkbook on the stuff that they do. So there's, there's more coming on that. So well, you, you be sure to tell them. And when you talk to Todd and when you talk to Sydney, cause I know you're on a first name basis with these guys, not so much, but I hear when you, you talk right. to these guys, you tell them that some of us out in the field really appreciate the, the information and the help. And uh, we're trying to get on board. Um, SIFs, I'd, I'd like to come back to SIFs a little bit. Could you explain for those people that aren't quite as familiar with what you're talking about, what that means and how you distinguish when you are looking at near misses or other uh, predicates, what a potential SIF event is versus some of the other less consequential events? No, I, I'm, ha- I'm happy to do that. And uh, again, what, what really got me in this um, arena was, was the, uh, you know, Rouge, Rouge event where we unfortunately lost six workers that day. Um, and a number of things stand out for me that day. Again, you know, never again, we just can't let that happen. And, and Ford made that commitment and they did some wonderful things after that. But Bill Ford went on TV that day. He, he went right down to the site and he got in front of the TV cameras and, and you had all those um, handlers, as I call them, said, Bill, don't do it. And he said, those workers are Ford family members. And, and he went on TV, right? And just the leadership, you know, Bill Ford getting on TV and said, you know, and talking to the media about, you know, how the family and, and what that meant. So SIF, serious injury, serious injury and um, um, uh, fatality prevention. Um, you know, some of the folks that have done a lot of work in this regard that I've that I've looked up to over time was uh, first of all Steve Newell from um, 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 ORC. Uh, Steve has just been a, been an incredible champion. Um, um, ORC, as I understand, was recently uh, uh, acquired by the National Safety Council, and I think Steve is you know retired. But Steve uh, sponsored uh, partnered with the uh, um, Alcoa Institute, 
um, and they had at least two forums um, in the country that I'm uh, um, at least aware of. Um, I was able to go to the second one, which was which was an, in um, uh, a Pittsburgh, which was you know specifically related to you know SIF you know precursors, etc. This is just me personally. When I go to national conferences, I hone in on 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 you know big oil, um, you know oil and gas. The reason is that those folks deal with high risk work every single day. Okay. Yeah. And I think a lot of the, uh, the processes, the procedures and the work that they've done to address that, I find very, very educational. And I've really uh, extracted and gleaned a lot from, you know, listening to those folks. And much like we said, the things that you worry about, you know, the minor injuries are very different from those SIF and those precursors and the things that we, and we you know, we can learn from those. You know, the mindset is that if, if you're just chasing recordable injuries, you really got to be looking at potential, not necessarily outcome, because the potential of those that, you know, maybe we got lucky and the person failed safely. But if we ha haven't failed safely and like I, I like to tell people, you know, what is wearing fall protection do for you? You failed. Right. You fell. But right. you failed safely. Right. And what else can we do to, to build, you know, capacity around that? And um if it's okay, can I jump into my capacity story? Because I'm just trying to tell it to you. Oh, yeah, man. There's no rules here. Yeah. So um, this is, I think, like the classic capacity story. And I can't make this one up. And I got to be a witness to it. And I'll leave it at that. Um, so uh, within, uh, you know, the automotive industry, you know, we, we assemble cars, right? We use a lot of powerful hand tools to uh, put fasteners in place. And, um, you know, we were having a series of, of uh, very, very serious hand injuries, amputations, serious lacerations relative to folks that were using these rotating tools, right, with high torque. So um, we worked our way through the process, right? So unfortunately, we sort of maybe did it a little backwards initially, but uh, you, you got to learn from it, right? So we initially, uh, we first uh, looked at the gloves we were using. So, you, so Doug, you say, Mark, those people shouldn't be wearing gloves. We can say that all day, right? You're handling something that potentially has splinters, right? Metal splinters. You have something that might have machining oils on it. And people said, I don't want to directly be touching this stuff with my hand. I want a barrier, right? So we initially had people that were using, let's say, the uh, polyurethane coated gloves, just like maybe a general utility glove. But uh, of all the various coated gloves, this is the world according to Mark, this is a, a you know, disclaimer, whatever, the PU gloves have really this most, the most you know, grippiness to them. So our first step was we need to eliminate, you know, PU gloves. We gave ourselves a little pat on the black back. That didn't do it because uh, we went to uh, nitro gloves, maybe something that has less um, less stickiness, right? But you can still, right, do, do the job, still having hand injuries. So then we went into coated, uh, we went to uh, putting a covering over all of the shafts of all those tools. Very expensive, um, uh, undertaking to do it, um, a lot of grief because you got a lot of different tools and a lot of stuff. So we uh, we did it, and and for the most part, again, we were getting better. It wasn't good enough. We we're still having, unfortunately, some very very traumatic hand injuries, uh, whether it be that a potentially um, they couldn't get one. They ran to the crib. They needed to run a tool to to uh, make you know you know production that day. So uh, they would end up with a, a, a tool that wasn't uh, in, in a sleeve or they got their hand too low where the you know rotating part was. And a guy that I was working with named um, uh, Regis Rusnak, uh, Regis came to me and uh, he said, what do you think if we could develop a glove that had tearaway fingers? And I said, Regis, 
What do you smoke? <laughs> right, right. Okay. He said, no. He said, are you okay if I go work on this? I said, yeah. He said, I think it's, I think it's attainable. So uh, Regis worked with our PPE vendor, Choctaw Call. I give them a lot of credit because uh, they invested a lot of time and energy. They worked with a PPE supplier that I'm forgetting the name. They're in Ohio. If somebody wants it, we can sure track it down. I'm sure they're still around. And they went through a number of trials and tribulations. And they came up with a general utility glove that had uh, some uh, stitching around the fingers that if that tool got tangled around that glove, it just simply pulled the uh, glove right off. Nice. Pulled the glove right off. Nice. We went to zero. We went to zero. Injuries, injuries and amputations. We built capacity to fail safely. We built that in the event of error, in the event that I grabbed the tool wrong, in the event that I that I grabbed the tool that did not have that sleeve, in the event that I got my hand too close to that rotating shaft or that end that's rotating to put that fastener in place. And then, then, and then what we do then is we went through and we identified all the jobs very clearly. Here's the jobs that you know, require it. So we knew that if you're wearing theirs, you have to go tear away gloves. But then Regis, he upped his game. He came back and he said, what do you think if we could build a cut resistant glove with tear away? <laughs> I said, all right, Regis, what are you doing now? And sure enough, and I don't remember if it's a cut two or a cut four, it doesn't matter. They went and then built a, a cut resistant glove that also has the tear away features that, so you have the cut resistance part but um, around it so that if uh, somebody were to latch on, that it'll tear the fingers away. So um, I, I'm just honored because Todd actually made it the feature of, of you know, one of his podcasts. We, mm -hmm. we didn't do it for that reason. We did it for the right reasons. But, you know, we told Todd the story and he, th he thought it was pretty cool. But absolutely, it's just I, I just think it's a classic story that when you engage the workers and you understand what they're facing every day, you know, and, and understanding, you know, we had some folks that said, I can't believe you're letting these people wear uh, gloves. These people are, are going to wear gloves, right? Because they, they, they don't want to go home with splinters in their fingers, right? Or they don't want machining oils. They don't want dermatitis on their fingers. But really involving them and letting them trial different things and getting their direct feedback and asking the right questions to understand what they needed. It's uh, it's really a cool case story. And one that I'm really, really proud about. Oh. That we, could, we could go people because these were very difficult traumatic injuries that are permanently disfiguring. Um, and it doesn't matter, male, female, it, it, these are bad events and you can't let them happen. And that's something we're really proud about. And again, it was a partnership with our PPE suppliers, with our employees, with the union. We all work together to, to, to able to go and do that. So I thought it was a pretty cool story. That's a fantastic story. And it's, and it's really interesting because in most cases, people would either compel a certain behavior. They would just say, no gloves. We've identified these gloves are a problem. You're not wearing gloves. And as you alluded to, the employees are going to wear gloves if they if they feel like they need gloves. Yep. And it doesn't matter that you put in a rule and this, you know, this whole control thing we know doesn't necessarily work very well. And so I think it, it is always impressive when there's a little bit of uh, reality thrown into this process. And as you said, um, utilizing the, the input from the employees to help drive this direction. I'm going to use gloves. I know that creates a certain amount of risk, but 
as you said, this is my preference, and so it's going to happen regardless of how many times you tell me not to use them or discipline someone. It's going to happen, so we need to find a solution. And that process in and of itself is just brilliant, that whole learning team, um, identification, and correction process that is lacking in so many organizations uh, that I work with, trying to convince them that this is useful, that this is a way to approach it. I have those gloves now been, they are being marketed and utilized outside of, of the automotive industry. I, you know, I sure hope so. Cause I think it's a great thing and something that yeah, can really I know a lot of, I know a lot of machinists that would like to wear gloves, but they're so afraid of gloves for that very reason. You know, the lathe operators and anybody that works on any turning shaft driven equipment, you know, is, uh, probably wants gloves, but they're terrified of them or they've been ta- taught over the years you can't use them or whatever. So yeah. that seems like a solution that will have a lot of application. So so the one we're working on now, and uh, I, I'm going to need, need a bit more time, is uh, is that uh, we, uh, as I mentioned, we make plastic bottles. We're making some of the larger extruded bottles, like a, a big, you know, detergent bottles. You have something that come down called a mold knife, right? And mm-hmm. it closes off. And you touch a mold knife, it's instant laceration. So every time a bottle gets jammed, uh, the employees go might have to go in there and, and, and manually pull that bottle out. And um, the expectation is that every time you go in there, you pull the, you put this mold knife cover on. So um, again, blue line, black line. And I think you know where this is going. Yep. So um, we're going to do a, a learning team event, right, with those operators to really try to understand that and what engineering controls can we do. In a classic example, I'm really stealing this thunder from, from, from the site manager that who's really has just been come out and he's really an advocate for this. He goes out to his guy and he said, you know, what's a workaround? He said, I'll tell you the workaround. He said, you give me that three foot ratchet. I stand on the tippy top of my toes and I can ratchet it back backwards 96 times. And I don't have to reach into that equipment and grab that bottle. He said, you really think I'm going to do that? Mm-hmm. So um, again, getting out to those folks that are doing the work, and not just saying an absolute about shell, but understand those constraints and what, what they have to do and how we then can build capacity for them. And right. again, the context is driving behavior, right? Absolutely. And, and again, you know, I've, I've unfortunately amp, um, investigated, I'll say, 100 amputations in my career, if not more. And um, we've unfortunately, uh, one of my colleagues was at a site. He called and he said, while well, he was there, right? And he said, um, uh, Mark, we had an amputation. And I said, uh, what was the equipment reliability today? And he asked me, he said, how did you know I asked that question? I, I said, just in, in, in my little small world, um, high 90% of um, equipment reliability drives uh, amputations, right? That, you know, you have that equipment jam up and jam up and there's a problem and they're going in to make that one quick adjustment, whether they don't take the lockout or whatever they do, trying to be good workers, trying to do the right thing to keep the equipment up and running. They take that shortcut and boom, then, then something happens. And so, you know, really, if, if we drove equipment reliability, and, and I love to have that dialogue with senior leaders and TPM folks, that's why I'm a huge advocate that safety, quality, TPM, all, all sort of that triangle to, you know, support production, safe quality operations, that, that if we have that right, um, we can really, again, go after those, some of those um, you know, SIF prevention, because again, even from, you know, lockout, machine guarding, some of those, when you really peel the onion back, Doug, a lot of it is equipment reliability issued. You keep it running right, people won't have the temptation to not follow lockout, to not to reach in, to take those various shortcuts that can unfortunately lead 
versus saying, you know, bad employee. You know, the, the difference between a best practice and an injury is outcome, right? Right, exactly. If an employee gets in there and does it right, you say, good work. You got a new best practice. Look what great stuff you did. You kept the line running. If they go in there and get hurt, you're a bad employee. You should be disciplined. Right. You we, shouldn't we have done take, that. Yeah, yeah that's gotta, all you need. We got to take that mindset out. You know, yes. that machine reliability thing is so interesting. And your comment about unjamming, um, you know, the, the percentage of these amputations or injuries that are probably the result of something like that. I, you know, we talk about that a lot and um, troubleshooting, unjamming, those things that employees, maintenance guys, they perceive that, you know, needs to be done while the equipment is energized oftentimes. And OSHA's perspective and, you know, the, the traditional control compliance perspective has always been lock it out, you know, unjam it, and then unlock it, start the machine up again. Those are, those are in such tremendous conflict that we almost know that employees are going to unjam things or troubleshoot things while they are energized. It's just it's how they do their work. And so we need to find ways to build capacity into that system so that they can do that without endangering themselves, or as you said, you, you know, just work on the machine reliability so that we don't have to deal with that so often. We take away the temptation. If it runs take well, away the temptation, but we are not going to change the fact that they are going to do that with the equipment energized under most circumstances. Yeah. And these are good employees. Just the reality. You know, yeah. Just a couple of the thoughts I had, cause I, I realized I've rambled on a bit is oh, no. I just, I wanted to quickly talk to you about certification and just a, a quick, interesting story. So I, I, I did get certified in, in both hygiene and safety. Um, I didn't do it because I wanted some initials um, is, is I did it for a different reason. And I, and I love, love to tell this story, you know, um, getting certain. And I learned this in my certification journey. So I was I was getting ready for the CSP exam. So I had just taken uh, the section to learn about radiation. Right. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I learned about this much about radiation and I'm working for the insurance company. And I go to visit a job site, which was um, a nuclear power plant. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I said, hey, I just got some questions about, you know, you know, radiation. And uh, they said, we'll put you with our uh, with our, you know, physicist, right? The nuclear physicist, whatever they call those guys. Right. Yeah, brilliant guy. Right. And I said to this guy, I said, what's the average milliram exposure for your uh, employees who work here? He said, would you just say I said, Man, did I, did I, did I, did I not do the right? I said, what's the average millirem exposure? He said, you're the first safety guy that I've ever known that's even known what the hell a millirem is. <laughs> right. And I said, Hey, I, I'm, I am, I am no expert. I said, Hey, and honestly, I'm just studying for a certification exam. I just learned about it, but I'm curious to learn. Doug, that guy took me under his wing. He spent 45 minutes and talked to me all about radiation safety and nuclear right. safety, right? So yeah. to me, certification is the liberal arts degree of safety. To me, it's not the initials. It's, it's the journey that I took, the things that I had to learn. The fact that I had to learn ergonomics and radiation safety and some physics and all this other stuff, whether it be for CIH, CSP, whatever. I mean, let's face it. Is there credibility when you're in front of those regulators or those jurors? Maybe there is. I don't know. But to me, it's that, to me it gave me this depth and breadth that I could then talk to people about safety, right? The reason I went back to school, right? I went back and got an MBA is that I had a big budget. I was in this position with this huge budget. I had to go talk to finance people. I didn't know nothing about finance. Mm -hmm. I went and took a finance class. I took an accounting class. 
Then I realized hey, I take 10 more, I get an MBA. But the fact that I could then speak the language of the constituents that I had to, to that I got to work with, I took an organizational behavior class, probably the best thing I ever took to learn about how people work and how power works in organization and thought leaders. Again, the more that I think we can, can grow and develop ourselves as safety professionals, get them out of, out of our paradigm. Again, we can get really geeky in safety and we love being in our geeky world, right? But if we want to be effective and we want to then become, we, you know, we, we have to put the S off our chest and the F on those people on the floor. And that's about getting on the floor and speaking their language and knowing their operations and, and rolling up our sleeves and getting with them. Um, I just think that's critically important. And what are we can do to further our skill set of continually learning and growing makes us better safety professionals and, 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 and more effective because there will never be enough safety professionals in any company. There never are. But more that we can impart and empower and teach and, and learn and, and get on the floor and, and then learn where those constraints are, that's how you have an effective safety program. But one thing I got to brag about with, our, with my present employer, we have an incredible near-miss, incredible reporting system. Um, and this is one that uh, is a really a pride point is that uh, amongst our 3,700 employees, we get, you ready for this, nearly 30,000, 30,000 safety engagements a year, right? That means about 15,000 near misses, about 15,000 proactive safety conversations where we go out and talk to the employees. We expect peer-to-peer -peer interaction. Now, do we incentivize? We do. Our expectation is once a quarter, but it's really a cornerstone and a hallmark that from an engagement standpoint, I think it's perfect. You know, really when I look at a safety program, I look at it a bit like a suspension bridge. I like sort of the high risk stuff, what I might call that severity side. Mm -hmm. The other one is sort of that frequency side, whether it be the ergonomics, the minor stuff, but that bridge deck, that bridge deck is the culture and the full, the, to me, the fundamental of that is that engagement. Uh, we, we know you need the leadership commitment. If you don't have that, you got nothing, right? But the next phase beyond that is getting those workers engaged and getting it onto the floor. And it's something that I'm really, really proud of. They've been doing it before I got here. So I give, I have to give this company credit, but really putting the focus and attention and letting that be the metric, not the output, not, not, not the outcome metric, but the proactive metric of engagement. I really think that's help, helps to, to drive, you know, safety programs where we need to go as safety professionals. Because again, there's never enough, enough of us to go around. That's right. That's fantastic. And that is uh, going to be our next episode. So after you've listened to Bob and heard the new comments about efficiency and thoroughness and those kind of things, um, you're going to have to come back and talk about that piece because that engagement piece is so critical. I'm with you 100%. That, and to get 30,000 safety activities, safety engagement activities out of your workforce, um, I think everybody has that question. How do I get employee engagement? How do I get them to talk about near misses? How do I get them to report anything? you know, findings, observations. Um, I think the mechanics of how you guys do that would be really interesting to everyone. So hopefully we can do that. Um, we'll set some date two or three months from now. We are going to be, I can tell we're going to be fast friends. I'm going to be out on that pontoon boat next summer, it sounds like, and we're going to be, I don't know if you actually like imbibe or. It might happen. It might happen, yeah. But I would love to, I, I, one thing that I am a proponent of is just this continuous learning, um, intellectual curiosity. I was just looking at a, you know, in an organizational psychology program because I was looking, okay, what am I going to do next? And so I was doing research on online programming for organizational psychology. I think that's really interesting. 
I've been reading and listening a lot to these guys, you know, the safety two guys, because that is fascinating. You know, I've, our friends over at Make You Safe and some of the technological advances that are going to be taking taking shape here in the near future that they exist already. But I was talking to someone this morning when I was sitting in the car driving over here about some of the things that Make You Safe has the capacity to add to their data-driven decision-making. Uh, it is a great time to be in this profession. It's fascinating. It, it is, you know, and then you throw in the facts of like psychological safety and that effect on trust and then how that leads to engagement. Again, no, we'll, uh, we can get really geeky on that stuff. I love yep. to do it. I yeah, love it. Do. Okay, cool. I love it. And uh, the certification thing, thank you for sharing that piece too, because I went through my certification 2004, 2005, back when John Henshaw was the assistant secretary for OSHA. And he really felt strongly that was important, that it, it spoke to the credibility of the agency, uh, the just the education of the people that were within the agency. And so he was willing to put his money where his mouth was and commit you know, resources to that. And so I thought this is an incredible time to avail myself of that generosity. So, um, and like you, I didn't understand radiation at all, man. I mean, you know, I mean, there was so many, as you went through those preparation courses and, and the study, you were realizing my world is so small and limited. What I do as a safety professional is just one small slice of the entirety of this profession. They're just so many interesting directions to go and i when i talk to people like you that have had other experiences different experiences than i've had it always fascinates me so we have a lot more to talk about we have run up on our hour and um so it just goes by in a flash but we're gonna have to do this again okay um tell bob i said hello he won't know who the hell i am but tell him i'm a believer Okay. And we're out there, you know, whatever those guys are doing is making an impact. So to keep doing it and um, I'm going to be in touch probably this afternoon and we'll schedule another session within a few months. Maybe, maybe we'll do this quarterly if you have the, the stomach oh, for it. Love but, it. Fun stuff. Yeah. Hey, yeah. last thing, last thing I just want to add, I, I told the story I told Doug before this is it uh, I had a really tough week, week with a week with my mother. She got uh, influenza with subsequent pneumonia, right? But she had a flu shot 10 days beforehand. Uh, they had to call in the crash carts three times, but mom's alive. She's going to do well. She's going to recover. Uh, but her flu shot is what saved her. So get I'm, a flu an shot. I'm a believer. Please get a flu shot. Do it for you and your loved ones. Please I get a flu shot every year, man. I just like needles, frankly. Yeah. So, you, <laughs> <laughs> you know, there cool. is a little bit more to it for me than that, but I, I'm a believer. Uh, I got a flu shot and I, I'm, I'm totally in agreement. I'm glad your mother is doing better. Thank you. Hope she has a full recovery and does well. Um, and that's a great message to end on, man. Mark, it is, I'm really glad we had an opportunity to meet over <laughs> at Make You Safe a month ago. And uh, thank you for everything you shared. Thank you for what you're doing. Uh, you are a, you are an incredible advocate of this profession. And um, I hope you have a great evening. It sounds like you guys are having fun tonight. Yeah. So, and, and, and the last thing I got to say, I got to give kudos. So, um, a guy that I work with, work with named, named Mike White. He's he listens to you. Uh, he, he he you are one of his professors, and uh, and he oh, heard the Southern. Yeah, yeah, and he and he said, he says if you get it, he says I would so much like like to meet uh, Doug Fletcher. He's you know he's the best professor I had at school. 
So that's the reason I went up to you. I said, hey, I said, uh, one of your students says hello. And, and that's that's how we started the conversation, right? So a small world. So well, I to, hope I gave him Thank you for the mic for setting up the introduction. Nice. That's fantastic. I enjoyed that. I I really enjoyed it. I only spent a few years with Columbia Southern, but I enjoyed it very much. And I re- and I like this. I got to meet a lot of really incredible people. I mean, I had a I had students that were over in Afghanistan at the time. They would be doing their homework in a foxhole, taking you know, I got a, an email from one student saying, we took a bunch of incoming rounds last night, so I didn't get my homework done. I was like, you're okay, man. You're entitled. You're entitled. Get it to me when you can. So, Mark, okay. have a great weekend. It's such a pleasure. Thank you. I look forward to speaking with you again, and uh, thank you for all you're doing. Guys, gals, those of you that are out there in the profession doing this, that are true believers, we're with you. We're going to get you as much information and resources as we can to help you along your journey. Um And again, thank you to all our veterans, you know, serving now, having served in the past. We appreciate you. Thanks, everybody. Have a great weekend, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. A Huda Media Production.